Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. Well, today we are back in the series on Jude, and uh, we're up to verse 11 now. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of Jude. Uh, Verse 11, there's only one chapter in the book of Jude, and uh, we're talking about bad company today. You know, we used to always, Sue and I used to tell our kids that either you are influencing your friends or your friends are influencing you, one or the other. You never remain static in a relationship. So we need to determine there, am I influencing? It's not that we can't have friendships with unbelievers. I mean, we're never going to reach them otherwise. But it has to be the type of friendship in which they are open to being influenced toward Jesus. And uh, God can use us in amazing ways if we're willing to step out and be used of him. So let's look at this now today. Um, I know Sue came back yesterday just very excited about the ladies' day. And uh, we're just so thankful for these 50, 60 ladies yesterday that enjoyed the IF conference. Praise God for that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for the joy that we have to be back together today. And uh, Lord, I just uh, thank you for the IF conference Friday, Saturday, Lord. Thank you for these 60 ladies that had uh, the joy of participating in this, Lord. Thank you for the 30 that are going to be um, uh, joining the uh, Discovery, Discover Heartland class tonight, Lord. Uh, Father, you're doing some great things. Need to see a, a full house today. And uh, God, you are at work all around us. Bless us now as we delve into your word today. And uh, Lord, as we contend for truth, driven by love, which is the theme of the book of Jude. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Leaving My Father's Faith is one of those documentaries that is both very engaging and very heartbreaking at the same time. After Thanksgiving dinner 2014, Bart Campolo asked his dad, the well-known preacher Tony Campolo, to sit down to talk. Bart wanted to tell his father some shocking news. He was leaving the Christian faith, the faith of his father. Now, I have followed Tony's career over the years. It's debatable how much was actually left of Tony's faith. Back when I was a student at Bethel College in the 1970s, Tony Campolo came in and he rocked the campus. I mean, it was exciting. He is, he's part comedian, he's part social activist, part preacher, and he is an all-out motivator. Tony may be best known for his role as a spiritual advisor to President Bill Clinton. Like Clinton, both Tony's politics and his spiritual beliefs are a moving target. (laughs) 
and in 2015, Tony came out in favor of gay marriage. He keeps moving the boundaries of salvation wider and wider to the point where they now include just about anyone who's ever had a religious thought. But clearly, Tony is concerned for his son's soul. There's a fascinating exchange in the video where Tony speculates that maybe Bart is an anonymous Christian. Maybe he is someone who is doing the work of Christ without acknowledging Christ. But surprisingly, Bart wants nothing to do with it. Dad, don't keep moving the goalposts wider and wider. I don't want to be in. Even though Tony's inclusion borders on being a universalist, Bart wants nothing to do with any kind of salvation. Basically, he said, Dad, I'm out. I don't believe it. I'm an atheist. The turning point happened in the summer of 2011. Bart was in a bicycle accident, suffered a serious concussion. He now sees this time period as pivotal. When he came to, he suddenly realized he didn't believe in God anymore. Bart now sees his life mission as, quote, helping people accept that we're all going to die, that life is all, this life is all there is, and that therefore, to make the most, we have to make the most out of our brief, glorious time on this earth. That's his mission. Following his deconversion, believe it or not, Bart became a chaplain at the University of Southern California. He's proud of the fact he's the first humanist chaplain. So when he was invited to speak on the USC campus, he talked about how to persuade Christians to abandon their faith. Bart says, quote, the question we need to be asking is not how do we prove they're wrong, but it's how do we offer people the same values of love and goodness and purpose and mission, but not supported by ancient myths and fairy tales? I mean, talk about a punch to the gut. Bart didn't just leave the faith. He's an evangelist for the other side. What's even more scary is that he was a pastor leading right up to the time of his accident. There we go. He sure seems to be who Jude is talking about here in verse 4 when Jude says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, they are godless men. Today we come to verse 11, which continues to describe these godless men by comparing them to three very influential and notorious examples from past history. There's Cain, there's Balaam, and there's Korah. Together, these three are the bad news bears of the Old Testament. You and I would be wise to avoid anything to do with them. You see, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33. The Bible also says, Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and on his law, he meditates day and night. I regularly pray that verse over our church leaders and elders here at Heartland. Friends, we have to steer clear of bad company. Jude 11 teaches that bad company comes to us in three ways. It comes in the form of bad teaching, bad teachers, and bad movements. Okay, we're going to look at those one by one. First, let's look at bad teaching. Verse 11 says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. The English word woe comes from the Greek word oi, which is identical to the Hebrew word oi. For instance, Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good. Oi. Isaiah 3.11 says, Woe to the wicked. Oi. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. This is serious stuff. Like his mother Eve, Cain latched on to some bad teaching. In Genesis 3, when the devil came to Eve, the devil planted this thought. Eve, if you eat that fruit, your eyes are going to be opened and you will become like God. And you know what? Eve bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. Now in Genesis 4, Cain does the same thing. Both Cain and Abel were supposed to offer a blood sacrifice. We know that because Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. There was something wrong with Cain's sacrifice. The Bible explains that through his sacrifice, Abel obtained the testimony that he was righteous. How did he do that? Well, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Only a blood sacrifice can wash away sins. That's a very important teaching. In fact, you can trace that teaching all the way through the Bible to the very end. In Genesis 3, for the very first time, an animal is killed and blood is shed. And Adam and Eve wore skins of the animal to cover their nakedness. This was foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ. Years later, the Jewish people were liberated from Egypt by a blood sacrifice of the Egyptian firstborn sons. At the same time, the death angel passed over the Israelite homes. Each year, this was observed in the festival of Passover. Until finally, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, came to our earth as the Lamb of God, and his blood was shed, get this, on the exact day and the exact time that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed for the sins of the people. 3 p.m. on Passover day. Cain disregarded the most important teaching in the entire Bible. The blood atonement of the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that was foreshadowing that. You cannot mess up that teaching and be saved. Impossible. 
How do we know that? Well, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's how our sin and our guilt and our shame is canceled. Don't latch on to a bad teaching like Cain did. He thought he knew better than God, but he was only a fool. For the rest of his life, Cain was on the run. God even had to put a mark on him so no one would kill him. Friends, don't be a fool by latching on to a bad teaching. That's what Tony Campolo did. And guess what? That's what his son did too. Tony had chipped away at the authority of Scripture piece by piece over many years. He became the leader of a group called the Red Letter Christians, which prioritizes the teaching of Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with calling attention to the words of Jesus. I have a red-letter Bible myself. But, you know what? The whole Bible is God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's the breath of God. And it is profitable for you. The whole Bible is the breath of God. It's given for your good. When I heard that Tony had caved on gay marriage, it was, it was heartbreaking. I wanted to say, say it ain't so. Tony has a wide following. God has given him a prominent platform. But now he's using his fame not to draw people to Jesus, but to push them away from Jesus. No wonder Tony's son left his father's faith. <laughs> there, there wasn't anything anymore to hang on to. And besides, Bart is now claiming that he never really believed in the first place. He talks about this in the video, how he prayed the prayer to receive Christ, and he had these emotional feelings, he says. But he says, I don't think I ever believed it. Friends, this is tough stuff. And yet this is exactly what Jesus prophesied would happen at the end of the age. Jesus said at that time, right before he returns, many will turn away from the faith and they will betray and they will hate each other and many false prophets will appear and they will deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, Jesus said. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The lesson for us today is don't be a fool like Cain and latch on to some false teaching that's going to lead you away from Jesus. Don't go there. It could cost your soul. So the first way that bad company comes to us is in the form of bad teaching. The second way that bad company comes to us is in the form of bad teachers. Verse 11. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam. Who in the world is this guy? Well, his story is told in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Balaam is a classic example of a prophet for hire. 
Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse his enemy, the Israelites. At first, Balaam refuses to oppose Israel. But the further the story goes, the more you see duplicity. Balaam is two-faced. He's a double-minded man. And the Bible says, James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all he does. Balaam's story is fascinating. Early one morning, Balaam saddles up his donkey and he leaves with the princes of Moab. And as they're traveling, they keep upping their offer. You curse the Israelites, we'll give you money. He says nothing, we'll give you more money. They keep upping the offer. Visions of gold and silver are dancing in Balaam's mind. But lo and behold, as he journeys along, riding on his donkey, the path narrows. And finally, his donkey would go no further. Three times, Balaam strikes the donkey. But the donkey would not move. Finally, I loved this story when I was in Sunday school. Finally, the donkey turns around and says to him, Why are you hitting me, master? Aren't I a good donkey? (laughs) And then the Lord opens his eyes, and Balaam sees an angel standing in the path. And the angel tells Balaam, Why are you hitting your donkey? Don't you realize he has saved your hide? (laughs) God saw Balaam's heart, and you know what? It was full of sin and greed. He wanted gold, and he was prepared to sell his soul to get it. Surprisingly, once the angel straightens him out, Balaam goes on to speak for God. So on the one hand, Balaam is offering sacrifices on pagan altars. On the other hand, he's speaking God's truth. So who exactly is he? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he God's guy? Or does he belong to the other side? We face that today too, don't we? Yeah. There are a lot of preachers and teachers out there, and they're hard to figure out. Let me give you two examples. As long as we're talking about the Campolos, I feel I have to mention the Campolo, who is the biggest mystery of all. Tony's wife, and Bart's mom, Peggy. Peggy Campolo has been waving the flag for gay marriage since 1994, a full 21 years before her husband. Peggy has spoken numerous churches and universities across our land, and here is how she describes her life mission, quote, I am an advocate for justice for God's gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender children. Not in spite of the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus, but because of it. I believe in the rights and responsibilities of marriage for all God's children, not just those who happen to be straight. I want to let my LGBT brothers and sisters know that God loves them just as they are, and I am committed to telling their stories, 
unquote. That's her mission in life, okay? So let me ask you this question. Do you think his mom's teaching had anything to do with Bart leaving the Christian faith? Now, it's hard to believe it wouldn't have had some impact, right? This is tough stuff, guys. Life for the Christian today is hard, and it's likely to only get harder. As I am working on this message, okay, I'm in my office, I'm studying along, I'm uh, typing and working on this message. At this precise point in the sermon, someone stops in. It was a divine interruption, and they wanted to talk about Ravi Zacharias. Isn't that interesting? Just when I was working on this point right here. You see, over the last few months, the news has trickled out, drip, 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 showing beyond the shadow of a doubt that Ravi was not the man of God he claimed to be. In fact, we now know that our brilliant defender of the faith was a fraud. He, his sexual misconduct was extensive, it was continuous, and it was serious. It was not a momentary lapse of judgment. In fact, he was living a double life. This was a conclusion of a team of former FBI agents who did a thorough investigation. So how are we as God's people supposed to respond to such a tragedy? Uh, Sue and my daughter Carrie and I listened to a video last night of Josh McDowell interacting with his, his son, Sean McDowell, about Ravi's fall. It's on um, YouTube. It is excellent. So if you want some encouragement, what good could possibly come out of this tragic story? I would highly recommend catching that video. First of all, friends, we need to pray for the victims, including not only those that Ravi abused, but all of those that he deceived, starting with his own family that were devastated, and his friends, and his co-workers. Second, we need to be fully aware of the potential that all of us have to be deceived. The Bible says that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. We need God. We need each other. We need to confess our sins one to another. We need to forgive one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to hold one another accountable. There's a very interesting verse in the Bible that appears shortly after the accounts of Balaam in the book of Numbers. The verse is Numbers 32:23, and it says this, be sure your sin will find you out. It always comes out, doesn't it? It always comes out. Jesus put it like this, Luke 12, verse 3. He said, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. 
And what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops. Friends, that's exactly what's happening to Ravi Zacharias right now. Of course, we as God's people had no way of knowing this. Ravi's brilliance allowed him to carefully cover his tracks. The FBI agents are convinced that there wasn't a single person, other person in his life, that was aware of this duplicity. We must remember that the truth he proclaimed, that Ravi proclaimed, was still the truth. But perhaps we would be wise to also remember that we as human beings, we're jars of clay. All of us have a few cracks, don't we? So we have to be careful. Don't elevate your heroes too high. Now let's move on to the third way that bad company comes to us. It comes in the context of bad movements. Verse 11 says, Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion is one of those events in the Old Testament gets very little attention, and yet it contains so many lessons for us. Korah's story is told in number 16. Korah is a cousin of Moses. He's a Levite. He has many important duties in the tabernacle, but he's not satisfied with this. He also wanted to be a priest. And when he was not chosen to be a priest, he became very angry. Worse yet, he started to recruit others who were also overlooked, like Dathan and Abraham. Soon, there were 250 rebels in his ranks, and they formed a movement, and they were out to oust Moses and Aaron. But friends, God was with Moses and Aaron. They were God's appointed leaders. And to make this very clear to the Israelites, the Bible says, the ground under them, under Korah and his men, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth. Can you imagine this? And swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave. And then if that weren't enough, the next verse says, and fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men. Surprisingly, the Israelites are upset. But get this, they're not upset at Korah and his men. They're upset at Moses and Aaron for killing them. <laughs> Can you believe that? So God sent another plague on the Israelites that killed 14,700 of them. So again, I ask the question, what's the lesson here for us? And I believe the main lesson is very simple. Be careful whose movement you're joining. 
There's thousands of movements out there, aren't there? I mean, you have the NRA, the National Rifle Association. You have the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. You have the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is Marxist in orientation. You have the AARP, the American Association of Retired People. You have unions, don't you? You have civic clubs. We have fan clubs, sports clubs, political clubs. We have to always remember you're defined by your allies, whether you want to be or not. It's inevitable. You will be defined by the company you keep. Recently, I was reading the account of one Christian lady who participated in the march on the Capitol, the one that got President Trump into trouble. And she said this, and I quote, one minute we were laughing and we were having fun and we were taking pictures out on a balcony at the Capitol. The next minute I heard glass breaking and I saw someone break into the building and we left right away. I wanted nothing to do with that. My guess is the same thing happened also with the George Floyd protesters. Perhaps for many, their intention was to protest peacefully. Before they knew it, events were out of hand. The challenge for all of us, friends, choose your movement carefully. Especially be wary of movements that are oriented in rebellion. And yet we all know that any movement containing people is going to be less than perfect, isn't it? <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible likens us to pots that have been crafted by the master potter. That's what Isaiah 64, 8 says. And guess what, guys? We all have cracks in our pots. So be careful which movements you're joining Movements to rebel against the government. Remember, God has called us to honor our government. Although it's less than perfect. There's a lot of cracked pots in Washington, D.C., aren't there? Yeah. Of that, there is no question. God calls us to honor our families and our spouses does your spouse have some cracks in their pot? Remember, they've got to live with you. You've got some cracks in your pot. And our children, they have cracks in their pots too. God calls us to work. Even though every workplace and every business and every boss and supervisor is less than perfect. They've got cracks in their pot. And folks, God calls us to join a church. <laughs> and guess what? We got some cracked pots here as well, don't we? One old pastor said, to live above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, 
That's another story. <laughs> we live in a fallen world, and our world groans under the curse of sin. I feel sometimes like I'm the luckiest person who's ever lived because I have an awesome wife. I got to spend two weeks with my wife. She doesn't have very many cracks in her pot. I can tell you that. She is so much fun to be with. And I thank God for an awesome family. Thank God for an awesome church family. I was so excited to watch you guys online while we were away and be excited about coming back. So thankful for awesome co-workers. We have a lot of fun in the office, don't we, Pastor Jeff? Amen. We've got a great, great group of staff. And yet, we're all aware we are crackpots. God wants us to be careful about the movements we join. Don't be a hermit either, because we need each other. I close with this. Last year, Megan Hill wrote a wonderful little book. It's entitled, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And I just loved reading it. If you want to just read a good book that's just an easy read, and it's just about how much we need fellowship. And we've seen that in COVID, haven't we? We, we are social creatures. We need each other. And she wrote this book entitled A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And as I read through this book, over and over again, I was brought to my home church growing up. It was a little country church, eight miles south of Motley, out in the middle of nowhere. And believe me, we had some crackpots. Before, my, before I was a teenager, when I was just a little guy, the pastor and his family lived at the church. And I mean at the church, literally. This was very common, especially in rural areas. The, the pastors would live in a little apartment attached right to the church building. And sometimes parts of their home would even double as Sunday school classrooms. Imagine that. Our pastor always drove school bus. I mean, it was the only way he could make ends meet. Uh, so the poor guy was uh, constantly having to work long hours to make ends meet, and, and uh, yet you, you never heard any complaints. I mean, he, most of our pastors weren't the best speakers in the world. I remember my dad saying, well, he's a nice guy. He could use a little work on his sermon. <laughs> and, uh, of course, there's all, always people out there that uh, they don't really mind. You know, like Gilbert Willie, sleep through the sermon every week. Uh, every Sunday, the pew right behind us, old Gilbert, was out cold. But miraculously, he would come to right before the final amen. When I was a little kid, it seemed like our pastors came and went like a revolving door. Some of them went to the bigger church in the cities. Some went back to the working world, and yet every one of them were heroes of my grandpa. In fact, on my grandpa's mantle were pictures of every pastor and his wife since the church had been founded in 1937. 
And I can remember looking up at those pictures as a little boy, and Grandpa said, Denny, you are going to be up there someday because God has his hand on you. Unfortunately, when Grandpa never saw that happen, I was running for the state legislature the year that he died. The next year, I went to seminary, and I'm sure that Grandpa was smiling from heaven. Now, our church, like many, had a lot of conflict. After a long board meeting, Grandpa would say, I remember him saying the next day, the devil was in the window well last night. They had all their meetings downstairs in the basement, you know, and there was the old window wells. The devil was in the window well. Our church, we argued over everything. We argued over whether it was okay for Christians to drink beer. We argued over whether it was okay for Christians to play cards. We argued whether it was okay for Christians to go to movies and to dance and to wear makeup and on and on and on and on and on we'll go. There were many times we seemed to major on the minors and minor on the majors. And yet, this was our family. It was a messy family, but it was our family. And together, we pursued God. And when I went to seminary, the entire church cheered me on. There were people like my dad's best friend, Stan Bettis. Every Super Bowl Sunday, Stan had learned how to play guitar, and he would sing, Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life. And I could see my mom's hands on the pew ahead of her. Her, her knuckles were white <laughs> until the song was over. And uh, then over in the corner was Mrs. Howe, our everlasting Sunday school teacher. Year after year after year, Sunday school, vacation Bible school had Mrs. Howe. So one day I asked my mom, I said, Mom, what is Mrs. Howe's first name? Mom didn't know. <laughs> so she asked around the church. Now, we are, we're a church of 75 people, so it's not, uh, you know, it's not. And she did not know, so she asked all of her friends, what is Mrs. Howe's first name? No one knew. <laughs> Mr. Howe called his wife Mrs. Howe. <laughs> Now, I found out later that it, her name was Everell, E-V-E-R-E-L-L-E, -E -E, but uh, in church, she was just plain Mrs. Howe. And then there was the music. Oh, my goodness. Betty Seaton, our next-door neighbor, every month, at least once a month, she would sing after the offering plates were passed, even Gilbert would come too, as she sang. And the mice were scurrying for cover. 
Friends, this was the tribe that I grew up in. These were my people, and they shaped my life, and God used them, warts and all. They were good company. They were not perfect company. They had plenty of cracks, but they were good company. I know that because they put up with my cracks. Will you choose good company? 